Please stand for the reading of God's Word. Today's scripture reading is from Exodus 1, verses 8 through 22. And you can follow along in the Pew Bible. It's uh, page 45 or on the display behind me. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, They join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all of the in and in all kinds of work in the field in all their work they ruthlessly made them work as slaves then the king of egypt said to the hebrew midwives one of whom was named shifra and the other puah when you serve as midwife to the hebrew women and see on the and see them on the birth stool If it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dwelt, dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. This is God's word. encourage you to keep your Bibles open. If you haven't already, put them away or you're welcome to use the Bible in the rack in front of you as we look at this passage together. Let's pray and ask God to make himself known to us in his word. Gracious God, we praise you again for the chance of gathering and for the chance of opening your word. And we recognize and acknowledge, Lord, that when Your word is open, you are speaking. And so, God, we pray that we would hear. We pray that we would have ears to hear you and eyes to see you and hearts that are eager and ready to be changed by the power of your spirit according to the truth of your gospel. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. What are you willing to do to make it to the top? Or, if you're already there, to stay at the top. Uh, This week, you probably saw, some of you probably saw in the news, um, that Wells Fargo Bank employees had opened 2 million fake accounts in their clients' names. 
They lied and committed fraud and took advantage of their customers in order to make it to the top of their local branch or or whatever. Employees said that they were pressured to meet unrealistic sales goals and that they had opened bogus accounts so that they wouldn't lose their jobs. Meanwhile, the head of the division where the fake accounts were created is set to walk away with $124 million in stocks and options when she retires later this year. What will you do to make it or to stay on top? Uh, Last year, uh, Martin Shkreli uh, became famous as the guy who bought a pharmaceutical drug commonly used for HIV patients that he invested no money to develop, bought it for $13.50 a pill, and then turned around and sold it for $750 a pill. He made it to the top uh, as epitomized by his eccentric purchase of the sole copy of a Wu-Tang Clan album, which he has yet to decide whether the rest of the world is worthy to even hear. So, so at, at what cost does one make it to the top? You know, in his case, it was at the expense of suffering people. Now, you know, sometimes people make it to the top, quote-unquote, out of hard work and investment, true service. They find a way to contribute to society, uh, to build a better life, not just for themselves, but for other people. Success in and of itself is not an evil or bad thing. But sometimes the easiest way to make it to the top or to stay on top is to keep other people down. That's what we so often see. You know, we, we have this vision or this dream for our lives, and anything that gets in the way of that dream becomes a threat. We dream of a successful career, but finding out that we're pregnant right now might jeopardize that dream. We dream of a quality education for our children, but that might mean lobbying to keep minority children from a lower-scoring district from being able to come into our school, compromise our ratings, and so on. We dream of a certain lifestyle, but protecting that lifestyle means neglecting those around us who are hurting or in need. And it's not hard to see what's wrong with that picture. I mean, that's kind of obviously not a good thing to do. But what we don't often realize is that when we pursue our dreams or try to build our kingdom or our glory at the expense of others, we're not just using people or exploiting people. We are actually setting ourselves up against God. God is a God of life. His plan for creation is one of human flourishing. Be fruitful and multiply, as we talked about last week in Genesis. And when we work against the flourishing of others for the sake of our own success, we're not just taking advantage of people, we are opposing the plan of God. And that's what we see in our passage this morning in Exodus 1, 8 through 22. Last week, we looked at the prologue of Exodus, uh, the first seven verses, which kind of give us a context for understanding both the, the story of Exodus and the meaning of our salvation. God's work in salvation is designed to fulfill his plan for creation, a plan that was 
obviously compromised through human rebellion and sin, you know, right out of the chute, but a plan that he promises to restore through a covenant with his people. And as the book of Exodus opened up last week, we saw that God was being faithful to that promise through the flourishing of Israel. Verse 7, the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them, just as God had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that they would become this great nation. But when you come to verse 8, we meet a new king in Egypt who sees God's faithfulness and the flourishing of Israel not as a blessing, but as a threat. So look at verse 8 with me. Now, there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. And so Pharaoh, because of his ignorance of Israel's past, makes an observation about their present that will forever change their future. He's ignorant of Israel's past. He does not know Joseph. He didn't read Genesis 37 through 50, apparently, or, or pay attention to how it was that God preserved his own people, Egypt, from a dreadful famine, that it was through this Hebrew, Joseph, Jacob's son, who not only had the wisdom from God to interpret Pharaoh's dream uh, of a coming famine, but had a plan that in such a way that Egypt prospered and that people were preserved from death, including Jacob's family. So, so this new king doesn't know about Joseph or Israel or Israel's God. He's ignorant of their past. And so then he, out of that ignorance, makes an observation about Israel's present. He sees that the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. And he's afraid that they will multiply. Now, what's interesting here is that the Hebrew word that's translated many and mighty in verse 9 is the same word that's translated multiply in verse 7. And the Hebrew word for uh, excuse me, for many and multiply in verse 9 is the same word as multiply in 7. The word for mighty in verse 9 is the same word as strong in verse 7. So if you, if you look at how those two verses stand together, what was described as the fulfillment of God's promises in verse 7 is interpreted as a threat to Pharaoh in verses 9 through 10. And so... Pharaoh makes this observation and then makes a decision that will forever change Israel's future. He decides that he must stop Israel from gaining strength or multiplying in order to secure his own kingdom and glory. And so verse 10 again, he says, come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply and war breaks out and they join our enemies and escape. So Pharaoh has a dream. He has a plan, a vision for his kingdom, the greatness of Egypt, to be on top and to stay on top at all costs. And the flourishing of ancient Israel, which 
If you go back to Genesis and you see what God's intending by flourishing his people, you see, ironically, that's designed for the good of all nations. This flourishing of Israel is seen instead as a threat to Pharaoh's plan. What if they get so big and we can't control them? What if they they join our enemies and fight against us? What if they no longer contribute to the greatness of Egypt? But what Pharaoh doesn't realize is that by oppressing Israel, he's not just opposing a people. He is setting himself up against God. He's actively trying to stop God's plan from going forward. Which means that it's not just the future of Israel that's at stake. It's the fulfillment of God's plan for all creation that's at stake. The scene is set here, not not merely for a battle between Pharaoh and Israel, but for a cosmic battle between Pharaoh and God. And frankly, Pharaoh doesn't stand a chance. But he thinks he can outsmart God. He says, come, let us deal shrewdly, wisely. He thinks that he's crafty enough to thwart God's plan in pursuit of his own plan, which is basically the definition of stupid. I mean, it's like trying to stop a train just by standing on the tracks in front of it. That's not going to end well for you. But that's what we do whenever we put the glory of our own kingdom and our own dreams ahead of the glory of God. That's what we're doing. And all the more so when we do it at the expense of others. We fail to realize that there is no opposition in heaven or on earth that can stop God from accomplishing his plan through his people. It's just not going to work. But that doesn't mean Pharaoh won't try. And so in verses 11 to 22, we see the politics of Pharaoh as he adopts two tactics to try and stop Israel from from multiplying and gaining strength. And each of these tactics he tries to uh, execute in two different ways. And so the first tactic is in verses 11 to 14, and that is to oppress Israel with hard labor. Verse 11, Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses, and, and here, in this verse, is where the harsh Israel, the harsh history of Israel's slavery really begins. Uh, to go from verse 7, where you're finally a people, just as God promised you would become this great people. You go from verse 7 to being enslaved and oppressed just a few verses later. It's not only a matter of physical brutality. It is an attack on their dignity, on their very humanity. As one author writes, under a regime of slavery, subjects become objects. The Hebrews, who had just been identified as a people, are in the process of losing their identity. They are slaves of another, not a people in their own right. But the irony is that as brutal and painful as Israel's enslavement was, it doesn't work. Pharaoh's plan doesn't work. Verse 12, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. 
So to go from from becoming a great people to becoming an enslaved people might look like God is losing. It might look like God's promises have failed. But there's no opposition in heaven or on earth that is able to stop God from accomplishing his plan through his people. And so Pharaoh doubles down. The Egyptians are in dread of the Israelites. They are afraid of of these foreigners in their midst. They're afraid of losing control, afraid for their national security. And so what do they do? They act out of that fear and they increase the severity of the enslavement. They twist the screws even tighter. Verses 13 and 14. And and you hear the brutality and the heaviness of their oppression uh, through the repetition of, of the word that's translated work or slavery or service. Five times that word is repeated in just these two verses. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. And they made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. And in all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. It's like the, the hammer hitting five times through those verses, just the severity of their work. Even though Pharaoh stands no chance of outsmarting God, that doesn't mean that he's incapable of doing severe damage to God's people. The suffering is real and it's wrong. But these verses not only reveal the gravity of Israel's suffering, they also clarify the heart of what's really wrong in this problem. Not not slavery per se, but to whom Israel is enslaved. The same word that's used to describe the hard service of Israel to Pharaoh in verses 13 and 14 is also used later to describe Israel's service of worship to the Lord. Chapter 3, 12 and 4, 23 and a whole slew of other passages. And so the problem is that Pharaoh is stealing something that rightly belongs to God. He's stealing the service Israel owes God and taking it for himself. And to serve Pharaoh is bondage. But to serve the Lord, that's true freedom. To serve Pharaoh is to be subject to dehumanization. To serve the Lord is to find out what it truly means to be human. And so as one author puts it, God is not merely intent on liberating slaves in this story, but on reclaiming worshipers. He's reclaiming the worship that rightly belongs to him. Because there's only one God, only one king worthy of worship, worthy of our service, only one king in whom serving is actually freeing, and it's not Pharaoh. It's God. But Pharaoh's not convinced. He's not convinced. And so when his first tactic fails, he tries another tactic to stop Israel's flourishing. And this time it's even more brutal and more dehumanizing than before, he turns to murder. Verses 15 to 22. In his first attempt, he tries to kind of be secretive uh, and, and subtle. He, he pulls aside 
two Hebrew midwives uh, responsible for delivering the babies and, and tells them, if the baby is a boy, kill it. If it's a girl, let it live. His new plan to weaken Israel's potential for uprising is by depleting the nation of their potential soldiers. Get rid of the men. Which, of course, you know, what he fails to realize is that in the same process, he's also going to be weakening his own slave labor force. But, but that's only one way you see the foolishness of Pharaoh on display in these verses. The great king of Egypt, who thought he could outsmart God, gets served by a couple of lowly Hebrew women. Women who, whom the author dignifies by telling us their names. Have you ever wondered why we're not told the names of the Pharaoh? Uh, we're not told. Now, this Pharaoh, not his successor. In fact, there's all sorts of debates which Pharaoh was it in history, and we're not 100% sure. But here you have two lowly Hebrew women, and we learn their names in the story. It shows you how valuable they are and how foolish and insignificant Pharaoh really is. Shipra and Pua. Moreover, these women display the very virtue that Pharaoh lacks. The true definition of wisdom, they show us the fear of God. That's what the author emphasizes in verses 17 and 21, the fear of God. That's what motivates these women to refuse to comply with, he, uh, with uh, Pharaoh's murderous plot. It says, but the, the midwives feared God, and they did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. But they let the male children live. So it's the fear of God that motivates their noncompliance. And it's the fear of God that God recognizes and rewards in verse 21. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. That is real wisdom. That is real understanding. The fear of the Lord. That's what Proverbs tells us over and over again that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And that's what's needed when we're tempted to prioritize our own kingdom at the expense of others and in opposition to God. That's what's needed when we're threatened to comply with the kingdoms of others who stand in opposition to God. The fear of God keeps us from acting like Pharaoh and shows us what to do when we fall into the hands of a pharaoh. So what does the fear of God mean? Very simply, it's recognizing that God is God and I am not. That's the fear of God. Recognizing that God is uniquely worthy, supremely powerful, and he has an unqualified right to exercise his rule and plan for this earth. It means instead of working against God's plan, for flourishing. I work with it. Instead of opposing his plan to bless all peoples through his chosen people Israel, a plan that he fulfills in Christ, it means instead of opposing that, I trust in it. Fearing God stops me from acting like God and frees me to therefore serve God and truly live. That's what the fear of God does. And the midwives whom whom Pharaoh enslaved and commanded to comply with his murderous plot, out of their fear for God, they instead choose to live as free women 
and choose to serve God despite their slavery at great risk to their own lives. In fact, you could say without the defiance of these two women, God's great plan of salvation for all nations could have fallen apart right there if such a thing were possible. It was If the Hebrew children had been murdered, if Israel had been cut off right then and there, all of the plans of God would have, would have crumbled. But they knew what Pharaoh did not know, that even if it cost them everything, there is no opposition in heaven or on earth that can stop God from accomplishing his plan through his people. And not only does God protect them from Pharaoh's wrath, um, Pharaoh buys their rather flimsy excuse for why they let the Hebrew children live. But Pharaoh's second tactic also proves to be a failure. You can't stop God's promise from happening. Verse 20, the people multiplied and grew very strong. The very thing he's trying to stop from happening, the very thing God promised to do for his people, God is winning, Pharaoh is losing. But the chapter ends on a cliffhanger, verse 22. It introduces Pharaoh's second attempt to carry out his second tactic of murder. And this time, instead of relying on the midwives in secret, Pharaoh commands all of his people to throw any male, any Hebrew male that they see, any Hebrew male baby that they see into the Nile. So his murderous plot comes out of the shadows and right into broad daylight as a national public policy. A plot that, again, threatens not merely to end a people, but to overturn God's entire plan for creation. If Israel's cut off, God's promise to Abraham will fail. If God's promise to Abraham fails, there will be no Christ, no Messiah, no hope, only death and darkness and decay. Now, we have to wait till next week to find out what happens with this second attempt. It is okay to read ahead if you must. But we already have a feeling for which way it's going to go, don't we? We already know from this chapter that, that just because things take a sudden turn south doesn't mean that God's no longer at work or that his plan is somehow now failed. And we've seen that in this chapter, that the suffering and hardship that Pharaoh inflicts is very real. It's very wrong. But we've also seen that he is a downright fool to think that he's crafty enough to thwart God's plan in pursuit of his own plan. And it's easy to, you know, to read this chapter and to think, look at Pharaoh and say, wow, I mean, that is pretty stupid. Uh, and we should think that when we read this. We're supposed to think that. We're supposed to see the folly. Um, and it's even easy to think that, you know, this is just so obviously wrong. Who would ever do something like this? But the reality is that none of us are immune from the politics of Pharaoh. The temptation to prioritize my kingdom and my glory and my plan and my dream over God and at the expense of of others. The politics of Pharaoh are alive and well in every age and in every heart. 
And it's interesting, you know, uh, we see it in our government, for instance, both the right side and the left side. It's interesting that in, in, elect, in an election year, how you can hear echoes of Pharaoh's program in both the platforms of the right and the left. The kind of fear-mongering that whips Egypt into a terrified frenzy over what these refugees might do if we don't suppress them and control them and treat them like a problem to be managed instead of a people to care for and love amid their suffering. Pharaoh might as well have been wearing a hat that says, Make Egypt Great Again. But then the other side, the callous disregard for human life in its most vulnerable form that would take someone who's supposed to be a medical professional that you should trust to care for life and using that medical professional instead to take life because of the sake of personal security or whatever we might do to justify the murder of an infant. That's official party platform. Both sides you see the politics of Pharaoh today. We are not immune from any of this. And the temptation not only to do it ourselves, but to comply lest the other side win. It's just not how the gospel works. The politics of Pharaoh, they're alive in businesses, in schools, in churches. We're not immune from that kind of strong arming. But they're alive everywhere today because they are alive and well in every single one of our hearts. Every single one of our hearts. We all want to be king. We all want our way. We all want any threats to our way to either be eliminated or marginalized, suppressed somehow. We are always at risk of setting ourselves up for our own kingdom or to be co-opted by the kingdoms of others, which is ultimately to set ourselves up against God. And so what do you do? I mean, how do you even escape something like that? Our hearts are so wicked. Our world is so broken. What do you do? Well, we follow the model of the Hebrew midwives. We fear God. We recognize that he is God and not me and not anybody else out there. That he is uniquely worthy. He is supremely powerful and he alone has an unqualified right to accomplish his plan in this earth. A plan that is for life and for flourishing and not for marginalization or death. It's the fear of God that keeps us from acting like Pharaoh and that guides us when we fall into the hands of a Pharaoh. The fear of God moves us to search our own hearts and repent of Ways that we've been selfish and greedy at the expense of others. The fear of God moves us to seek forgiveness for our sin against God and against others. Which means that the fear of God ultimately points us to the gospel of Jesus. That's where the story of Exodus is going. That's where the promises of Abraham are fulfilled. That's where God's plan for creation is finally accomplished in the good news of the cross and resurrection of Jesus. Because the reality is, as much as I might want to try to renounce the politics of Pharaoh and contribute to the flourishing of of 
human society and so on. I can't do that on my own. Uh, First, I'm already guilty and deserving of God's judgment for the sins that I've committed. And second, the sin in my heart will find a way to co-opt and corrupt every good thing I try to do. I will somehow mess it up, believe me. Left to myself, that's just what happens. And so we need to be cleansed. We need to be forgiven. We need a new heart that is free to serve God instead of try and be God. And for that, we need a Savior. And that's where the story of Exodus points us. Not just to God's great act of salvation for ancient Israel, which we will see, but to the greater act of salvation for all people through the death and resurrection of Jesus. The Lamb who was slain that we might be cleansed, that we might be forgiven, that we might be free to serve God and not Pharaoh. To work for life and not against it. To put others ahead of ourselves. To free us and replace the politics of Pharaoh with the politics of Jesus. It's interesting, you know, if you think about Pharaoh's agenda in Exodus 1. And compare that to the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. Think about the stark difference we see. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who are broken and bankrupt and who know it. As opposed to those who are proud and self-confident and domineering. Blessed are those who mourn over their sin, over the brokenness of this world, not those who contribute to it. Blessed are the meek who trust God with the outcome rather than those who use force and coercion and violence to get results. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for everything to be made right instead of complying with unjust systems and withholding justice from others. Blessed are the merciful, the compassionate, those who are willing to love at great cost to self, as opposed to those who withhold mercy for their own personal gain. Blessed are those whose hearts are pure, not blinded by sin. Blessed are those who work for peace, for wholeness in life, not those who divide and conquer, Blessed are those who are persecuted for doing what is right. What the world tells you is wrong, not those who oppose them. We see in the politics of Jesus a completely different picture of life. We see a life of freedom and glory and honor. We see God's vision for human flourishing. And that is what God saves his people for. It's not a coincidence that the very words to describe Israel's service as slaves is used to describe Israel's service of worship. God saves them from serving Pharaoh so that they might serve him in his plan, his purposes. And this is the picture. And this is a vision that's only possible through a relationship with 
our Savior, Jesus Christ. He's the only one who can cleanse our hearts. He's the only one that can give us the real strength that we need to not be part of the problem, but part of the solution. He's the only one who can take unworthy sinners and reconcile us and bring us into relationship with our holy and worthy God. That's God's vision for life. And it will prevail. It will prevail. There's no opposition in heaven or on earth that is able to stop God from accomplishing His plan through His people. And praise God for that. Because there is no other plan that offers life and true freedom and blessing and hope for a new and better world than the plan of God, than the gospel of Jesus. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we are only able to call you Heavenly Father because of your grace. And Lord, we confess to you this morning that there are so many ways that we fall short of your vision and your glory, of your kingdom. Lord, we confess that we put ourselves above others. We neglect your word. We give you the leftovers of life. And Lord, we thank you that your love is loyal and steadfast to us despite our sin. That your plan will move forward and that not even we can stop it. And we praise you that that's true because we need your plan more than we need anything else. To be forgiven, to be reconciled with you to serve you and not ourselves, Lord, because only in that is there true freedom. And so, Lord, we pray for eyes and hearts that see you in your glory for who you really are, that we might so obviously say no to lesser gods, lesser things, and give all of our worship to you. And we pray for hope and perseverance when we find ourselves on the receiving end of someone else's oppression. Lord, give us the wisdom to fear you and live as free people, even though others try to enslave us. People who are freed by the gospel of Christ, free to forgive and to love others, even when they don't deserve it. Free to make much of you. Lord, you are our hope and you are our, our life. And so we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.